Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them and open them to Isaiah. We're going to be looking at chapter, the end of 52, Isaiah 52. We're going to begin in verse 13. We're going to read through the end of Isaiah 53, which is uh, 12 verses. Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. I'll be reading out of the ESV this morning, but this is the word of the Lord for us. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of of the children of mankind. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For what has for what that which has not been which has been not been told to them they will see and that which they have not heard they will understand who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the lord been revealed for he he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. Would you pray with me before we start? Heavenly Father, we come before you. We come before this very important passage in the Old Testament. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see Jesus more clearly during this time. 
Lord, we pray that you would open our ears, our hearts, and our minds, that we, we may know and understand and have fellowship and intimacy with Christ more because we've been spending time in your word today together. And that, Lord, by your word, you would take it and seal it to our hearts and transform us so that as we prayed earlier, we would be missionaries to those around us this week. We ask this in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. One of the things, one of the classes I enjoyed the most when I was in elementary and middle school was art class. And, you know, I haven't really gotten into art in my older, you know, as I've gotten into my adult years, but one of the favorite things of me to do when I was a kid was I loved drawing. I loved drawing. And one of the things I loved about drawing was I liked the challenge of being able to take uh, a subject, whether it was a human being or a landscape or whatever it was, and my goal was to make it as realistic as possible, as realistic as possible. In fact, when I was a kid, I remember some of my favorite art, um, when I would go to the library and rent books on art, I loved renting books on Renaissance art. One of the things that caught my attention about Renaissance art was the incredible detail that these artists um, were able to give to their subjects. And if you, can, if you think about Renaissance art, probably one of the things that comes to your mind first, if you're like me, is probably the Mona Lisa. It's in Paris, in a museum, and you've probably seen the face. There's a woman sitting there, there's a background behind her, but, you know, when you look at the Mona Lisa and you look at her facial expression, you know, historians of art have wondered for a long time, what was her connection to Leonardo da Vinci? You know, what was that relationship like? Because this was obviously a picture where she had to sit there for long periods of time. What was going through her mind when he's painting her facial expression? And there's been a lot of debate about that, a lot of speculation. One of the things that's interesting about the Mona Lisa is when you look at the way Leonardo da Vinci painted her hands, he painted her hands kind of in a closed manner, and that was actually meant to symbolize the faithfulness and the virtue that she had as a wife to her husband of nobility. Everything about that painting is meant to communicate something. And we find something very similar as we come into the prophet Isaiah this morning. We started in 52 uh, verses 13 um, and we went through 53, but we're going to spend most of our time in 53 because what Isaiah does is he uses his words to paint a prophetic picture or portrait of the suffering servant of the Lord. This passage uh, is actually couched in a larger section talking about the servant of the Lord that is about to come. But I think the main point of this passage this morning is this. The portrait of the suffering servant includes a few things. Four, a description of him, a portrait or picture of his chastisement, his death, and then his reward. Those four things. A description, his chastisement, his death, and his reward. So let's jump in with our first three verses as we look at our first point this morning. The description of the suffering servant. Look with me again at verses 1 through 3. Uh, who has believed what has 
what he has heard from us? And who, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Stop there really quick. Look at the description in verse 2 that we have of the form, the appearance of this servant. He's unattractive. We see that he has no dignity, no form. That word means dignity. No splendor. In other words, this servant is not coming in, in a show of pomp. There's no, nothing impressive about him. In fact, the splendor that you would usually ascribe to some royal dignity, dignitary, like a king in Israel, this son of David is not going to have anything like that. When you look at him, he's not going to be the kind of person that would, would naturally attract you to him. No beauty that we should desire him. We see in verse 3 the reputation of this servant. He was despised. He was rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. And again, just in case you missed it, the first time he says it in the beginning of the verse, he ends with the same thing. He was despised. And we esteemed him not. Now, it's interesting because when you look at this picture, uh, this description in this portrait of the suffering servant, you see that this is not someone that we would be inclined to follow. In fact, he'd be the kind of person that if you saw him, you might just walk on by on the other side of the road like the priests and the Levites did in the parable of the Good Samaritan. In fact, it's because of this unattractive description that we go back to verse 1 and we see the questions that are asked about him. In fact, the questions could be this, Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You know what's fascinating? When, when you look at who this was written to originally, the Jews in the Old Testament, about 700 years or so before Jesus, the answer is that they are the ones whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed to. Think about it. In their history, the, the arm of the Lord had, had rescued them and redeemed them out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. After 400 years of bondage, he established the kingship with David. And by Isaiah's time, it had been centuries since they had been established in the land. They had been given the temple that Solomon had built. God's glory appeared to them in that temple. They had seen miracles through many prophets. Whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? To them. And yet, to those whom it has been revealed to, who of those people have believed Isaiah's report? In fact, if you go back to chapter 6 of, of Isaiah, you find the calling of Isaiah as a prophet when the Lord finally reveals himself. And it doesn't look like a very promising ministry. It doesn't look like a successful ministry. In fact, God sends Isaiah forth and he says, you know, you're going to go and speak to this people, but they're not going to really hear you. They're not going to understand you. Having ears to hear, they're not hearing. Eyes to see, they're not going to see and in fact, God's point is you are going to preach until you're blue in the face. No one is going to believe your, your message. No one is going to listen to you as a prophet. No one is going to take you seriously 
despite all these things that God has done for his people. And yet, sadly, when we see the New Testament come around, John the Apostle writes in John 12, 38, quoting this verse from Isaiah 51, 53, 1, Who has believed our report? You know, a greater than Isaiah showed up to the Jews, to Israel, who matches this description. He's despised. He's not esteemed. And yet the Jews did not look at him. They didn't listen to him. They they didn't regard him because he was not the Messiah that they were looking for. In fact, this despising of him fits Jesus' description in John 1, 10-11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world, that is the Gentiles, did not know him. He came to his own, or the Jews, and his own people did not receive him. And so, brothers and sisters, as we work our way through this passage, we need to begin to applying it to ourselves every step of the way. And I would begin applying it this way. The obstacle to the gospel message, that many people have a problem believing in the gospel message today, is that Jesus is not the ideal Savior that many people have in mind. He's not. Now, I have to admit, I, I have an affinity for superhero movies. <laughs> Some of you can probably resonate with that. You know, it, to me, it doesn't matter. Marvel, DC, I like them all. You know, one of the things that just attracts most people, like me, to a lot of these movies and to these, these idealistic stories of these heroes saving the world is that you have these heroes who, they're strong. You know, they have these powers They have abilities to do things that no one else can do. And they they do it and they showcase themselves in a way that is obvious to anyone that they're saving the world. They're going to go out there and if someone is going to like invade the earth or something, they're going to go and pound on that person. They're going to work to bring justice in very obvious ways. There's something attractive about them. In fact, I think one of the reasons those movies are so popular is there is a deep, innate sense in the heart of every human being that there's something wrong in this world and we need to be saved from it, but no one seems to be able to agree how we solve the problems that we have. You know, about a year ago, I was having dinner with a friend of mine who actually is a conservative Jewish rabbi um, up in the northwest suburbs. And I asked him, over dinner, if you had to boil down as a Jewish person the one reason that you would reject Jesus from being your Messiah as a Jew, what would you say to me? And his his response was very simple. He didn't even have to think about it. He looked at me, he's like, well, that's easy. Okay, well, what is it? He didn't do what Jews believe the Messiah is supposed to come and do. I said, what do you mean? Well, he was supposed to come and establish the kingdom. He was supposed to come and rid us of all of our enemies. He was supposed to come and establish the house of David again in the land. I thought, oh, okay. 
And I said, well, what is your assessment of Jesus as a Jewish person then? I mean, obviously, you, you don't see him as a, your Messiah. I mean, was he mildly successful in what he was supposed to come and do? And this guy said, no. In fact, he, he, it was a tremendous failure. He ends up on a cross. That is not the Messiah that we were promised. Brothers and sisters, he, that Jewish rabbi, fits the description here. And it's not just Jews. There are a lot of people that look at Jesus and, and say, you know what, I'm not sure I want what that guy has to offer. If, he's gonna, if he ends up on a cross, I might end up on a cross. When I talk to my Muslim friends, they have the same exact struggle. You know, they don't believe Jesus died on a cross. And the reason they don't believe Jesus died on a cross is because if, if one of God's prophets ends up on a cross crucified naked and, and, and just humiliated, that does not fit the description and the glory of one of God's holy prophets from their point of view. You see, many people, I think, have a hard time understanding a Savior that would humiliate Himself rather than exalt Himself like we see heroes do in the movies. This is why the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5.11 that the cross is an offense to unbelievers. And so I want to ask you something that you really have to search your own heart and ask yourself this. What are you looking for Jesus to accomplish for you? Because that's really what was at the heart of what my Jewish friend was talking about over dinner that one night a year ago. That's the concern my Muslim friends have when I talk to them about the gospel. And that's the concern that I think a lot of people have. They're not religious people when you're trying to share the gospel with them. What is Jesus going to do for me? Am I going to end up on a cross? What's this going to cost me? You know, a friend of mine this week uh, sent me a video uh, on, <laughs> over Messenger, and it was uh, and a reporter from Inside Edition had kind of cornered Kenneth Copeland. If you know who he is, prosperity preacher, he's probably, in my opinion, a little worse than Joel Osteen. Um, this guy flaunts his wealth like you wouldn't believe. And this, this, this reporter came up and she asked him, just off the cuff, what do you say to people, or what do, you, what do you think about people who question the way that you live extravagantly in luxury as a preacher? And to my utter dismay, but not surprising to me, this man went on to boil down all the promises that God makes in the Bible to wealth. He's like, well, God wants us wealthy. Can you imagine if, I mean, there's a lot of people that really believe that, but can you imagine if we really lived our lives like that? Do you really think that we're going to stand strong when difficult times come? <laughs> when, when, when the Lord calls us to suffer or persecution might arise? What about these people in the third world, like in China <laughs> or the Muslim world? Can you imagine if they lived like that? Well, God wants me rich, and I'm suffering, so therefore God doesn't love me. Can you imagine how devastating that is? to the heart of an individual. And it makes us have to stand back and ask ourselves, we may not think like Kenneth Copeland, but many of us still wrestle with wanting things from Jesus and conditioning our obedience and our following Jesus on what we get from Him. But like the Jews in Isaiah's day who were about to go into exile, they were about to be despised by the nations, they were about to be mistreated, they were about to be ripped from their homeland. 
brothers and sisters, Christians today are finding, we're finding ourselves more and more marginalized. And this is not meant to be like a doom and gloom kind of thing, but we are finding ourselves more marginalized in the public square. We're being ridiculed for beliefs. Um, we're called bigots, homophobes, judgmental when we don't buy into the political agendas of the day? Do you think that maybe the Savior might call us to be despised the same way that He was? And that that might be part of our sanctification? These are the difficult truths of Christianity. This was a difficult truth, I think, for the Jews of Isaiah's day. But Isaiah the prophet didn't stop there. He brings us to our second point in verses 4 through 6. He doesn't just talk about this description of, of being despised. He goes on to talk about the chastisement of the suffering servant. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. What we're seeing in verses 4 and 5 is, is very simple. It's the chastisement that fell on Jesus at the cross. And I think all of these descriptions are very clear. Look at this. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed Him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross, how the crowds were responding? You have the Roman guards mocking Him and casting lots for His clothes. You have all the Jewish religious leaders walking by, looking at Him, like nodding their heads and, and gnashing their teeth at Him and saying, you know, if, if you're really the Son of God, if you're really Christ, come down cross right now and they would believe you they mocked him and surprisingly Matthew says that even the, the thieves that he was crucified with on his right hand and on his left they also mocked him they believed that because he was on the cross that God was punishing him you know what's strange they were partially right weren't they he was on the cross taking the punishment but it wasn't the punishment of his own sin it was the punishment of our sins and i love verse five because verse five really highlights a core christian truth a core gospel truth he was pierced for whose transgressions ours he was crushed for whose iniquities ours upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. There is a spiritual exchange. There is a transaction taking place. My sin gets put onto him so that his healing and his peace and his righteousness can be given to me. And we see the purpose of all of this in verse 6. Why did he have to do this? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, when sheep go astray from their shepherd, especially at this time in history where they still had lions in the Holy Land, the sheep were, it was like a death sentence. The sheep had no idea that they were wandering away most of the time because they're not paying attention. 
They wander away, and then what happens? They get caught up and eaten and devoured by some wild animal like a wolf or a lion or a bear or something. And this is the imagery that the prophet uses to describe his people in the Old Testament who consistently over and over and over again um, rejected the prophets, rejected the call to repent, rejected faithfulness to their covenant God, much to their own demise. But it's a lot like us today. You know, when he says each one has turned to his own way, Psalm 14.3 says this, they have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. And so I want you to see here what's the reason that Jesus is suffering here. The suffering of Christ accomplishes the remedy of our deepest, deepest needs. I want to talk about that for just a minute. You know, because the cross addresses our own tendencies to view ourselves autonomously. You know, most of us see life in a very self-centered way. And I'll be the first to admit, as I tell you this, I'm probably more guilty than you of this. So I'm not saying anything to you that's not true of me. It's common for people to focus on their physical needs, but that focus can sometimes blind us to the spiritual needs that each and every one of us has. You know, we live in a world that, that, that pumps this worldview into us through news, through media, so, media and social media, through entertainment, um, through our friends. And it's a worldview that tells us that the world can be centered around us. It is narcissistic. It is very individualistic. It is subjective. And it's subjective in a few ways. Think about what we see in our world today. And it really illustrates how we go our own way and go astray like sheep. We believe that we can, we can determine our own reality for ourselves. I want you to think, of, think about this for just a moment. Probably in my, in my mind, the most um, obvious way we see this, and probably the most dramatic way we see this, is in the transgender community today. And this is not meant to be a swipe in any unloving way against that community. But I want you to think about the mindset behind what they're being told. Because what, the, what Isaiah is doing here, he's getting us to examine the worldview of those around us and to see how it contrasts with what we find in Scripture. The lie that a lot of people believe is that, well, I may biologically and physically be a male. But if I feel like a woman trapped in a man's body, the reality is not what's physical. The reality is my emotions. And do you see the disparity there between what they're feeling versus what is real? And what the world is telling them today is that the way you feel determines the reality that should be on the outside. And therefore, what happens? Then they begin to in a medical process. Much, much to their um, destruction. You know, it breaks my heart to say, and when I read statistics like the suicide rate 
in the transgender community is 40% higher than any other subgroup or substrata of society. That breaks my heart. Because what we're seeing is we're seeing the world telling people they can create their own reality. And when they do that, they go astray like sheep. Have you ever wondered why that 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 suicide statistic is the way it is? Why is it 40% higher for them versus everybody else? It's because in order to transition, they've they've got to kill the identity that they were born with. They've got to kill the gender that they were born with, in that case through a medical process. And they've got to take on a new persona. And when that doesn't work out and they realize what they've done to their body physically, then they, the emotions start kicking in and regret happens. It's, it's tragic. Now that, that's, that's a really dramatic example. But most of us truly believe we can determine our own reality for ourselves by the choices that we make. And brothers, I want to just tell you, that's not biblical. We don't determine reality. God has created reality the way it is. But when we try to determine reality, we walk each according to our own way. Like sheep, we go astray, and the results are are devastating to people. You know, another way that we see this is the way we view truth. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone or tried to have a spiritual conversation? Um, and one of the things they might say is, well, that, that may be true for you, but that's not true for me. Or if you correct someone, and I'm, I'm seeing this more and more in Christian circles, you can correct someone on maybe a misunderstanding they have of something scripturally and they might like tell you, well, that's just your interpretation. Or, well, who are you to tell me that I'm wrong? You know, we see this worked out in, in, a, in a big picture way with the way we use social media. Have you ever wondered why people get so nasty in all those little comments? I mean, we, we are functioning on social media. And by the way, I'm on social media, and I think there are good uses for it. <laughs> But we function in a way where everyone's opinion on everything is equally valid. Again, not true. If someone is talking about a medical issue that they're having on social media and someone who is a, an MD weighs in on the issue, uh, on the comment, guess what? I can comment and sound as intelligent as I want in the comment below that doctor, but guess what? My comment is not going to carry the same weight as a trained professional. Not all opinions are created equally. Not everyone has the quote-unquote right to claim that their truth is true. But when we claim that, look, truth is relative, what do we end up with? We end up with bickering. We end up with comments that are nasty towards one another on social media. Why? Because everyone has to be right. And who are you to tell me I'm wrong? And relationships are damaged. And then people unfriend each other on Facebook or unfollow each other on Twitter. And then other people see that and then it creates all kinds of confusion and then relationships are compromised. The last way we see this is each of us tends to choose what is morally right and wrong for ourselves. If we call someone out on something, called a bigot or called judgmental 
We're called out of touch. We're called mean. And yet, the diagnosis from God's Word this morning is that despite the fact that each of us goes our own way, despite the fact that many of us have experienced tremendous pain and we know people that have suffered the consequences of things that they've done that have been really bad because they've gone their own way, guess what? We have, we have a Savior <laughs> who bore our who carried our sorrows, verse 4. Who was pierced, verse 5, for our transgressions. Who was crushed for the things that we have done wrong. And it's through His wounds that we are healed. But the reason that He had to go and do this is because you and I have been affected by sin in every area of our lives. There's nothing in my life, I can honestly tell you as I stand here, there's not been affected by sin. My thoughts, my emotions, my, my actions, my relationships, all have been affected by sin. And what we find here, the wonderful news in verses 4 and 5, is that the cross brings atonement for sin. You don't have to live under the guilt and the weight of your sin and the shame that comes upon it. Notice the exchange that has happened here. This is what theologians have called the penal substitutionary atonement for sin. All that means is that my guilt, my shame, my sin, my transgression, my condemnation was transferred onto Christ on the cross so that His righteousness could be transferred to my account simply by faith. This is why the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him, that is Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And so His suffering led to what we're going to see in verses 7 through 9 in our third point, the death of the suffering servant. Look at verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? Stricken for the transgression of my people. You know, we see in verses 7 and 8 the manner of the servant's death, the death sentence. If you remember Jesus standing before the Jewish Sanhedrin um, after he was arrested in the garden, you remember Jesus standing before King Herod and Pontius Pilate when he was taken away. If you remember that, Pilate particularly was astonished that he did not answer him anything. Pilate is questioning him. Why are these people accusing you? Why do they want to kill you? What have you done? And Jesus just stands there and Pilate is, is amazed that Jesus stands there and in John uh, chapter 18 he says, look, do you stand there and say nothing? Don't you realize that I have the power to either release you or send you to the cross? Jesus was silent. He didn't argue with his, with his accusers. And, and 
by the oppression that he was taken away. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment. Think about the false witnesses that came before him. And I love Matthew's little commentary on that when Jesus is standing there before the Sanhedrin. They're accusing him mercilessly, false witnesses left and right. And Matthew says, and none of these false witnesses make any sense because they're contradicting each other. And yet he was still condemned to a cross. Do you see Jesus protesting his death here in this prophetic portrait? We don't. He's sent off to death. And yet we see in verse 9 the burial of the servant. So obviously we see his manner. He willingly went to death. But verse 9, we see the burial. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. I love how that's fulfilled. I mean, ultimately it's fulfilled when Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, Matthew chapter 27, verses 57 and 59. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea, Joseph, who was a disciple of Jesus. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in in his own tomb, which he had cut out from the rock. Luke adds the detail, no one had ever laid in that tomb John repeats the same details. But we see again Jesus fulfilling this through his death. And that leads us to our last point this morning, the reward of the suffering servant. So we looked at a description. He's been despised horribly. We looked at the chastisement. It was on our behalf for our sin. We looked at his death. Let's look at his reward in verses 10 through 12. Let's look at verses 10 and 11 first here. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, one of the reasons I don't think we need to feel guilty all the time, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. Let's stop there. Do you see what's happening here? What's the reward? The punishment was death. The reward would obviously be life. That's exactly what we find at the end of verse 11, verse 10. He shall see his offspring. In other words, his offspring are going to multiply. He shall prolong his days. In other words, yes, he's going to die a horrible death, but he's going to rise again, never to be subject to death again. And everything will prosper in his hands from that point forward. But let's look at verse 11 here. Let's continue. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous. What a tremendous, tremendous benefit or reward. The servant will make many righteous. You know that verb? To make righteous here is in a causative stem in the Hebrew. What that means is the righteous servant will cause the saints to become righteous. In Romans 5.19, for as by one man's disobedience, talking about Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, in other words, Christ's obedience 
unto death on the cross, the many will be made righteous. And actually, it's interesting that that follows right after talking about the resurrection because later on in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, the Apostle Paul writes, we, by His resurrection, we are justified. And so it's in the death and the resurrection of Christ that we are made righteous. And then in verse 12, the servant will make intercession. Look how verse 12 ends. And he makes intercession for the transgressors. All that means is that Jesus Christ continues to pray. That's what interceding means. It's to stand as a middleman between God and men. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7.25-8.2 Look, after Jesus rose from the dead, did He stay on the earth? Is He still walking around? No. He ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1 and He's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. What do you think He's doing there? Well, one, He's ruling and reigning, but He's interceding as the high priest for you and I. Think about that for just a moment. <laughs> he prays for you today. To me, to wrap my mind around that is almost impossible, but the scriptures tell me that it's so. So, the benefits that we receive from Jesus' cross and his resurrection are really a restored relationship with God and His representation of me in God's presence. I love these benefits because they're the heartbeat of the gospel, aren't they? You know, when the Apostle Paul writes the book of Galatians, he writes in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he says... um, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we've already preached to you, let him be anathema. As I've said before, I'll say it again right now. Whether an angel from heaven or another prophet preaches another gospel to you, let him be anathema, cut off from Christ. And then he goes on in the rest of that book, to highlight the fact that we are saved by grace through faith. Justification by grace through faith. That's the beautiful benefit and reward that you and I reap from the death and the resurrection of the suffering servant in this passage. It is an amazing amazing promise because when you think about who the Jews were in the Old Testament, how they had um, fully and continually disobeyed God's word. They broke His law. They broke His covenant. They went into exile. They incurred His wrath. They incurred His judgment. And what is the the prophet telling him here? Despite all of your disobedience, there's a servant that's coming. And he is going to save his people fully and to the uttermost. It's wonderful. That the, the doctrines that we believe, that we see in the New Testament, we see them also in the Old Testament. 
And it's important for us to know that just as Jesus was going to the cross and he tells his disciples, don't be sad, I'm not leaving you as orphans. Just because he died for our sins, as wonderful as that is, and he rose from the dead, as probably more wonderful that that is, and ascended into heaven, he doesn't leave us alone. He doesn't let us just figure it out, guys. You're in a tough world. Life is hard. Get used to it. Figure it out. That's not the attitude of this servant. He continues to intercede for us. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, as he applies it to the Spirit, with groanings too deep for words. Look, there are many things that we struggle with in our lives. There are many hard things that we have to deal with. Um, And it's not just external things going on around us. I'm talking about the sinful things in, in our own hearts. People wrestle with sins. Those can be sins of a sexual nature. Um, Those can be sins of, of a nature like greed for money or power, manipulating people. Whatever the issue is that people wrestle with. Guys, I want to encourage you this morning. Because that's what this passage is meant to do. It's meant to encourage us. That God has made provision for everything that we need for salvation. Nothing is lacking. Absolutely nothing. And not only is nothing lacking that could have already been done to secure our salvation, God has given us everything we need. Particularly in the New Testament, we see the Holy Spirit given to us. We see a high priest in heaven who makes intercession for us. You are not left alone as orphans without a parent in a cruel world. You are left with a faithful shepherd who will continue to shepherd you to the very end. You see, this portrait that we see in Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant includes a beautiful description of him because when we're feeling despised and dejected, we can look at the portrait and say, I'm not alone. When we look at this portrait and we see the chastisement and the suffering of this servant and we go through, through different forms of suffering in our own lives, whether that's suffering in a bad relationship, whether that's suffering in unemployment, Whatever that may be, we can look at the the Messiah and say, you know what, I'm not alone. He has suffered on my behalf and knows what it's like. And brothers and sisters, when one day each and every one of us, as we all will, when we face death, whether because of natural causes or getting old or we get sick, we can face death looking at the portrait and saying, Death, you will not have the final victory. You will not have the sting because there is a reward waiting for me in the presence of the suffering servant. Look to the portrait, brothers and sisters, this week and remember who you are in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.